Hi, I'm Mark Nielski. I'm the author of The Economics of Happiness and my new book, An Economy of Wellbeing. Welcome to the Economy of Wellbeing podcast. I believe the most important aspiration of our life is well-being and genuine happiness. But by happiness, I refer to the original Greek definition, which literally means well-being of your spirit or well-being of your soul. I also believe we have an opportunity to change the consciousness of our world and the planet by rediscovering the true meaning of the words of business and economics, such as the word wealth, which literally means the conditions of well-being from the Old English. In my podcast, I'm joined with some incredible guests and elders to talk about the development of this new economy based on well-being. I wrote about those ideas in my new book, An Economy of Well-Being, Common Sense Tools for Building Genuine Wealth and Happiness. We'll explore many of those topics in these podcasts with some of my great guests. You'll learn how to adopt some of these ideas in your personal life, your business, and your community. I hope you enjoy these podcasts and feel more hopeful about the future. You can learn more about my book, The Economy of Wellbeing, from my website, economyofwellbeing.com. That's economyofwellbeing.com. And you can also purchase my book on Amazon as an ebook or a paper copy, or listen to my podcast and be inspired. Have a wonderful life. I think, yeah, people are being a lot more introspective and reflective because of this, the crisis, the circumstances. Right. Our mortality is right here in our face. That's Jody's Callahoo Stonehouse, my next guest on the Economics Wellbeing Podcast. Well, and I think not only should the First Nations be thinking about the questions that you're posing, but all Canadian citizens, global citizens, I mean, this has been a global pandemic. We're all rethinking the way that we live, the way we interact. I mean, we can't be around each other unless we're two feet apart. Yeah, it's yeah. changed uh, our relationships with each other, the land. There's no airplanes in the sky. So what I, what, what I thought we might touch on, if, if you, with your permission, is sort of what you're seeing in this, in this you know, the COVID situation, particularly from a First Nations perspective. And... Um, what is what is your hope and what indigenous the indigenous narrative has to teach us about the economy going forward really because you know it's i think pandemics will come and go but you know will our economy be fundamentally different and what do indigenous uh, peoples have to teach us about an, a new economic paradigm shall we say yeah. from your perspective and and of course also as a, as a woman uh, I just thought your from your unique perspective in Alberta, but also as a Mohawk, um, right? You're a Mohawk. Yes, I am. So welcome, Jody Stonehouse, my friend from Edmonton, and a, Mo- a Mohawk woman. Thank you for joining me in this conversation. That this podcast is an economy well-being, but feels like I'm doing all these special editions during the COVID uh, pandemic and the economic fallout that uh, that is resulting from this pandemic. Um, can you just introduce yourself and your background and uh, what what gets you up in the morning, what motivates you to just keep going? 
<laughs> sure, I can introduce myself. That's the easy part. What gets me up? That's, that's a little more complicated. Coffee. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> the dog. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much the dog. Yeah. Um, so as Mark uh, mentioned, I'm from Treaty 6 territory. Uh, I'm from the Michelle First Nation. I'm a Kalahu. We are from the Karakanti lineage, the Waniandi, uh, which is from the Sky family in Ganawage. And my grandfathers and grandmothers were La Voyageurs, and they brought Anthony Henday, Alexander McKenzie, along with other folks out west. And uh, our Mohawk lineage is settled here, uh, right outside Edmonton in Kalahu. So that's uh, who I am. And I, I come from a long line of, you know, alternative economies, whether it was the fur trade or the longhouse or ways of engaging, of surviving on the land. You know, our, our people have had to survive smallpox pandemic, the Spanish flu, and now here we are with the COVID. And I think this is a, a really important time for all of us as global citizens to rethink the way we do business with each other to rethink the way we live together. And I'm praying and hoping that we do things from a much, uh, a much more uh, generous and empathetic place that we're more kind and more loving uh, as human beings, as we see so clearly how fragile these economic systems are that keep us alive. Right, so, right. Just yeah. remind me, I, I believe uh, Callahu, you're also referred to as the sun travelers. Is that, is that true? Yeah, that's yeah, true. My, my neighbor, my next door neighbor is a Callahu, uh, and he has a book called The Sun Travelers, The Story of the Callahu. Uh, and, and so you were voyagers following the river systems, traders, right? Trading, uh, as the Cree people were traders as well. Uh, I mean, it, who they're wasn't a trader? They're kind of traders. Just kidding. They're, they're, yeah. <laughs> We'll slag my friend Lewis Cardinal later. Traitor. <laughs> what I love about it first, you know, your your sense of humor is just uh, arresting, shall we say? Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think that's part of the medicine of surviving pandemics, and it's been a terrifying time uh, for everyone. And so we've made space on social media for our comedians, for our storytellers, so that we are laughing because. I mean, part of Pomazzo in, in the Cree frame was being alive well is, is laughter. So mm. we're making sure that we have space. Yeah. For yeah. A mentor once said, you have to laugh 30 minutes a day. It's good medicine. So, uh, so we're, we're putting in our minutes here. So, <laughs> so, I, so in terms of um, what you and I've been working on is something we, we call it love medicine, which sounds really cheesy. And, um, but I, it, it to me it's a fasting love is a pretty heavy word but i think this notion of medicine um in, in this COVID situation what what do you see as kind of necessary at, 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 to strengthen our our natural immune systems our economic immune systems yeah. as we deal with what what probably was too much of a uh, fragile system and economic system based on just-in-time inventories and maximizing gdp um, and profit maximization, where now everything is halted, everything has come to a standstill. And what what do you, from your stories, the narrative that you've grown up with, uh, is kind of a sign of hope for Canada, for this beautiful, peaceful, sacred place as a model 
Uh, is there an indigenous narrative here that you see emerging potentially coming out of this crisis? Well, you've touched on a few things. Um, one is the, the love medicine work that we're doing, which I think is coming at a critical time. We are afraid to say the word love. If we look at all the work of academia over the past 50 to 75 years, we're talking about everything except love. <laughs> we sure like to dance around it, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think, you know, without love, I mean, we know babies develop failure to thrive. You die without love. So it's essential. And when we think about strengthening our immune systems, um, I think about the way elders have harvested medicines and um, when they pick those medicines, they're doing it with love and prayers and intention for, for well-being, for strength, you know? And when you make those medicines, whether you're boiling rat root or you're boiling bear root or even ginger root and you're, you're boiling these teas, you're singing songs of love and health and well-being. So, you know, love is rooted in those strengthening of immunity and the laughter, as you mentioned earlier, keeping our lungs open and wide and breathing and laughing as part of that. The economic systems are much more fragile than our bodies, the GDP and this profit margin. I mean, the collapse of, of the world essentially and the fear and all the toilet paper purchasing that went on. <laughs> we, we've come to realize that the most important things are A, each other and B, food, right? Like mm, th those yeah, are- absolutely. Yeah, food and each other, yeah. The fundamentals and, you know, the systems that we come from around growing food, you're singing to those songs, you plant the, the three sisters in coordinates in relation to each other and there's ceremonies for those songs because we want that food to thrive and grow so we thrive and grow. So I think shifting the GDP is about bringing in measure systems about well-being. So how... Are we ensuring families are getting the food they need to be well? How are we ensuring families are getting the mental health? So the communication, the stories, the, the challenging of minds, the questioning, the thinking, so that people can stay well. I mean, we're not going to be stuck in a pandemic crisis forever. So what is the world we're going to create when we come out of this? And, you know, if you go to any gardening center right now, there's no seeds. <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, I didn't notice that. That's right. There are no seeds. There's no seeds. So people are planting gardens. And that's that's not a new thing. I mean, when immigrants and settlers came here, they too had to survive on the land. Yeah. So it's really uh, as us revisiting the old. We're going back to our grandparents and our great-grandparents' time. Yeah. And maybe, you know, remembering those ways of, of living in harmony with each other and the land. Right, right. So one might say that it's only a few generations in a way, if you look at our grandparents, that we've kind of lost the thread or we become complacent or used to an efficient system. But what you're talking about is going back to an ancient wisdom of, uh, as you say, all my relations, you know, when you enter the sweat lodge and uh, tell, tell, tell us from a, like a Mohawk perspective, I've had lots of conversations with Lewis Cardinals from you know, Cree nation um, but from a Mohawk perspective, how did that all my relations kind of manifest in a governance kind of structure and a decision-making structure? And what would, what would the Mohawks say today about how we proceed post-COVID? 
Well, I don't, I wouldn't say it's just Mohawk. I would say all indigenous peoples around the world, mm. when we govern and, you know, are, are with our families, our communities, our bands, however we identify them, our house systems and on the coastal territory, our family systems are, are primary to how we govern. And not everyone is in charge. Not everyone, you know, you often hear that word consensus-based. Yes, we are consensus-based and we will discuss things in our family, but then a spokesperson is chosen because we feel they are the most knowledgeable in our family to speak to and about with others about that. So it's not where we're all sitting in a circle taking a turn to talk. It's we're choosing the people who are most knowledgeable to speak about and for and represent us. And, you know, we want to make sure all the voices are lifted. And if there's a challenge, we have those challenges. Um, and it takes time. I think that's the biggest piece from an Indigenous governance model. It takes uh, time. Yeah. It takes time. Uh, these things take time so that we are honoring everyone's perspective and not missing anyone. Mm. And uh, that it's not easy for non-Indigenous people often to sit in a space and place where we're hearing stories because oftentimes people dismiss stories as myth or why, what does this story have to do with, with what's happening right now? How is that relevant? And for us, our stories are embedded where our laws, our legal traditions are, mm -hmm. our value systems, how to be good human beings. And so those stories are part of the governance. They're part of the law. They're part of how we should treat each other. And so even though the story was based a hundred years ago, there are still principles and value systems that we take and apply today in our, in relation with one another and each other. Right. So whether it's coming from a Mohawk perspective, uh, Iroquoian or coming, you know, from a Cree or, you know, any indigenous people on Turtle Island, they're all rooted in coming from a family base of kinship, the way we're responsible for each other, not just mm. ourselves which is where you see the contrast with the Canadian system, with the West, with John Locke's, you know, property law. <laughs> we are well, connected. Yeah. With, with a system of borrowing from Rome, from the codification of laws, uh, which the, the British perfected, or whether they perfected it above Rome. But it is fascinating. And, and you've studied law. And, you know, our, our friend Val Napoleon studied law. And to me, that's fascinating. Now, in, in, your, in the Six Nations culture, which the Mohawk are part of with the Onondaga and right, Oneida and that. Um, Onega, Tuscarora, Seneca, yes. Yeah. Are you, you're a matrilineal, um, matrilineal structure. And how does that, how do you think that um, guides us today? Does it, I mean, you know, I, I'd be terrified to be, you know, managed by women, I guess, but that's the reality of my life anyways. Uh, just, just joking, of course, but, um, but I've seen it being with the Onondaga in upstate New York that um, this matrilineal structure is fascinating where the, the women are the clan, you know, who, you know, maintain that clan structure and the men are elected or, or de-elected by, by the, the matriarchs of the fam, of the clans, right? And um, so I found, I've always, having met, uh, the Onondaga in New York, I thought, wow, this is an interesting model 
that may hold a key. In fact, it was the inspiration apart for the U.S. system that Benjamin Franklin studied, uh, uh, you know, the Iroquois uh, Confederacy model. Yes. So in terms of what, do you see this as kind of a, again, a, an interesting platform or shall we say a new narrative for, for Canada, Kanata? Well, so the Haudenosaunee people are governed by clan mothers and we're not the only indigenous group that are matriarchal. There are mm. others. And, you know, I think often it's difficult for people on the outside to see how a matrilineal system works because often you'll see the men uh, speaking out or the men are cheap or the men are the political leaders. <laughs> But what they don't see is the mothers, the grandmothers, the wives who sit with those men and who direct them and who, who guide them and teach them their entire lives essentially on how to lead the people often. So matriarchy can look in many different ways for many different nations. And I think often it gets quickly dismissed um, when we see a man on the, a man on the forefront, but what they don't see is all the women behind him positioning him in that position of power. They also have the authority to take him out of there if need be. Right, right. But I think we're seeing uh, the spread of women leadership outside of Indigenous groups. I mean, if we look at the COVID in, in Canada, it has become very clear and evident that women are at the forefront leading the way. <laughs> the men are trembling in the background. It's like, Right. So, I mean, I think women are, because women are connected to the land, to the families from where I come from. And so we understand those relationships very intimately, which makes for extraordinary leadership. And so I think we're also seeing that during this pandemic on a much broader scale outside of Indigenous communities, that women have the strength to lead the people in really profound and powerful ways. Wow. So what do you think is being born right now? What new narrative is being born? I pray and I hope <laughs> that the narrative that's being born is uh, one of kindness, one of tolerance. You know, we have a really deplorable history in Canada around genocide and uh, we've caused a lot of harm to a lot of, of folks and you know maybe this might be the time where we actually come to the table and are able to move forward in relationship as we imagined at the sign of treaty in relationship about sharing the land and living together in relation to each other as as kinship as relatives mm -hmm. as relatives yes right? yeah. taking care of each other making sure we're all safe making sure we all have enough to eat. That's what I hope. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, treaties are, are, are you know, agreements of relationship. And it's it feels like, you know, we've jokingly sort of, not jokingly, seriously kind of drafted this thing called the Love Charter, which were the, you know, the Magna Carta was called the Great Charter of Freedom. And you see that, you know, these charters, the Declaration of Independence in the United States, and it's saying, what will we declare as self-evident uh, going forward that um, doesn't rebuke what what was um, what was uh, as an economist I could say was a bit um, was destructive of the natural world uh, or not in harmony with the natural world and we have money systems that are not in harmony with the natural world so uh, 
I, I think the, the message here for me, at least as a colonizer or an immigrant son is to say there, there is a new kind of declaration that's possible that may actually be a sign of unity of hope of returning to harmony, which uh, Orrin Lyons from the Onondaga said, he sees the end of the two row wampum, the treaty, right? With Washington being replaced by a circle wampum, which is kind of compelling vision of um, what's coming. Um, and it won't be easy. The transition is difficult, but. Well, it has been a difficult transition for folks. I mean, going from living the status quo, you know, the GDP, our jobs, everyone, you know, driving big trucks in Alberta. It's been very humbling for a lot of people and we're being faced to reimagine our future and it's uncomfortable. And so how can we push folks in a direction now that we're uncomfortable and we're stuck uh, to think about living differently? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Well, any, uh, any closing thoughts about, I mean, you've given lots of your sense of hope about um, what do you see as we kind of move forward on this love medicine platform and maybe talk about that just a bit. I know we're, we've been looking for, uh, we, we have some pretty audacious uh, vision, our uh, vision and aspirations for this platform, this show. Yeah. Or, yeah. Tell so, us about what you feel. What, what, what's your vision for, Love medicine. So love medicine is where we get to travel intimately into indigenous spaces around the world and we're looking at wisdom of how folks have survived and thrived and looking at innovative practices. So we know climate change is real. We know the planet is warming. And so how are we taking those wise practices and being innovative to ensure the survival of humanity, not just here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, but around the world? So right. looking at strengths, looking at stories of hope and resilience and uh, sharing love medicine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I think uh, the, the common thread here is that stories is, is what uplifts us and keeps us uh, hopeful about tomorrow. And, and we are a part of this emerging narrative ourselves and what exciting time to live and uh, really is. have our being. Well, thank, thank you so, thank you much, so much. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, hi, Nanessa. Hi, hi, hi. Just... <laughs>